When we focus on the final package, we often disregard what is left in the cutting room floor. Find out why this is where most of the magic happens. I'm Ethan Devitt and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Heather Brilliant, who's a president and CEO at Diamond Hill Capital Management, a $30 billion asset manager headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. She previously was Chief Executive Officer Americas at First State Investments, and prior to that was CEO at Morningstar Australasia and formerly Global Head of Equity and Credit Research. She's had a career-long involvement with the CFA Institute globally and was formerly chairman of the board, as well as a director and board member for over seven years. Welcome, Heather. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Ethan. Well, let's start with your background, where you grew up and how you ended up pursuing a role in the investment world. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I was not someone who dreamed of being in investment management my whole career. In fact, I went to college thinking I would become a lawyer. And I decided as I was nearing the middle of college that I wanted to push myself further than I felt like a political science major would do. And so I switched to economics and it really opened my eyes to some aspects of not only econ, but also accounting and international finance and investing. And through that, you know, I also kind of spent some more time investigating that, in fact, my grandmother was an investor and she would talk about some of the stocks that she'd held for long times, which largely fell into the category of nifty 50. So through that, I kind of thought, well, this might be an interesting area to investigate. So I ended up, you know, starting my career at Bank of America, which was helpful because while econ did give me some exposure, it certainly is a liberal arts background. And Bank of America had a great finance training program that sort of helped me start out on the right foot. Those training programs really are the best, but I have to ask you a little bit more about your investor grandmother, because it's not often that we hear about women investing at that time. What was her background and how did she end up having such an interest? Yeah, it is a really interesting story. And it was actually more out of necessity than anything, because my grandfather died of war-related injuries after World War II. And so she was left to raise seven kids, ranging from basically three years old to 23 years old. She fortunately, he had left her with some inheritance or, you know, assets to invest. And so it was really critical for her to figure out what to do with those and to make sure that happened. And actually a really funny story about her. She had this broker who she'd been using for years and years, uh, you know, kind of an old school stockbroker, because this was a long time ago. And he always would run by her any trades that he would do because that's what her expectation was. Well, one time I remember I was probably around, I don't know, 18 or 20. He made a trade without her approval and she fired him after dozens, like probably decades of years of working together. She fired him because he disregarded her opinion and it's her money. So anyway, I learned a lot from her about, you know, taking really long-term perspectives and thinking about making sure you invest in companies that you can really understand how the cash flows work. But overall, yeah, she was just an amazing role model. Certainly sounds that way. Well, then moving back to your own career. So you entered, you started using your skills and getting trained on the job, which many of us have. It's very much an apprenticeship type role initially. Can you then take us forward to how you ended up moving out of the United States and taking your skills abroad? Absolutely. 
So I spent about a decade in roles that I would consider very directly related to investing. So I I really was only at Bank of America for 18 months, kind of learning the basics of credit research. And then I quickly decided that I wanted to move to something that was a little bit more exciting to me, which for me, even that early in my career, was to try to do something international. So I ended up going to a firm in Chicago called Driehaus Capital Management, where I spent three years on their international team, researching companies and you know working directly with the portfolio manager who was also running that team. And you know the, the downside of working there is that I realized aggressive growth, momentum investing probably didn't suit my personality very well. But I learned a ton while I was there. And after that, ended up going to Morningstar, where I was an equity analyst. And I did actually spend a little time there as an equity analyst, leave and go to a hedge fund for a while, and then come back to Morningstar. And through all that, just really learned a passion for fundamental cash flow-based intrinsic value investing. And despite that, though, I really felt like while I loved investing, I felt like I wasn't necessarily achieving my highest and best purpose. I really loved working with people and figuring out what motivates people and, you know, how to figure out strategically how a business might want to position itself. And I wrote a book even later, later in my career on economic moats or sustainable competitive advantage that I think kind of ties into that passion a little bit or ties them together. Ultimately, I ended up applying for and becoming the head of equity research at Morningstar, which allowed me to manage a team of about 120 analysts based all over the world. And I loved doing that. And after I had done it for about seven years with a few changes along the way, including launching credit research, I decided it was kind of time for my next move. And so I approached Morningstar and said, hey, I I heard you might be looking for someone to head the business in Australia, New Zealand, and I'd love to be considered. And it was a very short process. And so off to Sydney, we went. It's interesting. That kind of mirrors a bit of my experience um, when I went to Hong Kong from New York City, where I worked as a lawyer. And I certainly wasn't in a leadership role at that stage, but there weren't many applicants for that role. That taking a leap across continent is not something for everyone. So actually, uh, I think that was my opportunity. And how did you find that the cultural differences there? I mean, it's an English speaking country, but I'm sure there were still businesses done differently. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do think overall, I would say there's probably more similarities than differences in terms of how business is done in Australia. But some of the differences are that it is a very relationship-driven culture. And I think that's partially because Australia is a very small place. You know, there's only about 24 million people in the whole country. So I think that means there's approximately four or five million in the Sydney area. And that's a pretty small city by U.S. standards, right? And so people, especially then when you when you narrow it down to just the investment management industry, it's a pretty small world. And so, you know, building relationships and and really understanding the motivations of the people that are working in the industry is really critical there. I think it's critical everywhere, but it just was kind of at a heightened level in Australia. And then secondly, I'd say there was a big focus at the time I was there on improving gender diversity. And that's something that I feel like, you know, has become a big focus globally now, but felt pretty early, actually, when I was in Australia, they had this group of ASX listed companies whose CEOs got together and called themselves male champions for change. And so they were looking to, you know, advocate for improved diversity among the C-suite 
of publicly traded companies in Australia. And they ended up having to change their name to Champions of Change because eventually a woman was appointed to one of those CEO roles, which was great. But it just shows you, you know, how far there was to move forward on this topic. And unfortunately, some progress has been made. That's funny. There's a certain clumsiness to their title. I'm sure they meant well. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but it doesn't exactly have the right ring to it. Let's talk about your involvement in the CFA Institute before we, we move to talk about your current role. Did that start before your current roles? Did that start while you were still at Morningstar? Oh, yes, definitely. So while I was at Morningstar, I ended up getting involved with the CFA Society of Chicago, so the local kind of chapter in Chicago. And I just loved it. I felt like it was a great experience to work with and network with other kind of like-minded professionals in the industry. I think to, if I could overgeneralize, I would say people who are drawn to the CFA program are in general pretty fundamental in their investment approach. You know, really like to figure out how to calculate cash flows and build discounted cash flow models. And, you know, that's all certainly part of the program. So I think that reinforces a little longer term perspective in a lot of people who pursue the CFA program. And so, you know, through through going to their events and things, I ended up joining the board of CFA Chicago and eventually chairing that board. And shortly after that, well, I guess while I was in that role, I got invited to go to some of these leadership conferences that CFA Institute put on for leaders of local societies and got to know some people on the global board and ended up kind of making my way to the global board through that process. So I've been involved in some way, shape or form with CFA for going on 20 years, actually. It's been a long time. I want to ask you about some of the, the themes we've talked about earlier and how the CFA has forwarded that in terms of diversity. And, you know, you've spoken a lot about the training you've got on the job and how inspiring that has been. And perhaps it seems to me that this industry isn't very accessible or well-known outside it. So how does the CFA Institute kind of try to improve the pipeline? Those are really, uh, really good questions. I'd say, first of all, um, you know, the CFA program is emblematic of our industry in the sense that only about 18% of CFA charter holders globally are female. And um, you could dig into other stats too on, um, you know, different different elements of background, racial, economic, et cetera. But um, I only know the stats off the top of my head for gender diversity. So we'll stick to that as an example. And um, one of the things that we did when I joined the board was um, I think at the time that I joined the board, I was one of two women out of 18 people. And um, so we set a goal uh, in my first year or two on the board to get to 30% female on the CFA Institute board um, by 2018. And we ended up exceeding that goal, um, getting to, I think, close to 50%, maybe even a year early, if I'm remembering correctly, which was great. But um, also, I think, long overdue. And it felt meaningful because it at least it felt like we could lead by example. And if we were going to try to improve the diversity of our industry and of you know the boards of companies that we are looking at as charter holders, that we needed to make sure that we were paying attention to the diversity that, you know, example that we were setting with our own board. And um, I don't know ultimately that anything that CFA Institute has done has yet moved the needle in terms of the diversity of people who are taking the exams. I think there's a lot of um, effort going on both at CFA Institute, at local societies, and 
um, you know, throughout the industry that has really picked up in the last five years. And I'm so happy to see that. But I do think it's a really long game before we start to see it come through in some of the stats. So I don't think we should stop pushing. I'm a huge advocate for the benefits of cognitive diversity. I think the the greater diversity you have um, among teams, really the better opportunity to make sure that you're thinking creatively about how you solve problems and how you um, make investment decisions, for example. So I do believe it is a critically important topic. But um, I also I also think there's just a lot more work to be done. Couldn't agree more. Let's move now to your current role at Diamond Hill. I'd love to know what's at the forefront of your mind as you lead a $30 billion asset manager today. Yes. So one of the things that I think is the most important for, you know, for our firm, but as well for our entire industry is really making sure that we are always putting client and end investor interests first. And it's kind of an interesting topic because it's something every fiduciary must claim to do. But unfortunately, our industry really could be doing a better job of it overall. And so um, I think every day about, you know, how do we make sure whatever we're doing, what all decisions that we're making really are putting those client interests above our own. And, um, you know, it's, it's just so interesting when you kind of see examples where that isn't happening um, across the industry. I think ultimately clients know it and realize it. And so it's re- it has helped us, I think, over time because people like to partner with firms that they believe have their best interests at heart. And um, anyone can say that they do that, but I think really stacking up the actions that you take and the behaviors of the individuals and your firm collectively are what really show people whether you have aligned interests. And besides from that commitment to client interest, sometimes you speak about asset management firms being investment-led or, or client or sales-led. Are there any core beliefs that you hold? And how do you try to infuse that in the culture of Diamond Hill? Yes. I mean, I do think ultimately, um, you know, the asset management industry has a number of different business models that can be successful. And, you know, we are firmly and always will be a boutique. Um, right. Like if you 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 can look at the asset managers on the let's say the extra large end of the spectrum where the business really is about scale and, um, you know, lowering costs and making sure that you are delivering as cheaply as possible beta exposure to as many people as possible. But we don't operate in that side of the market at all. And so when I think about our world as defined by being a boutique. I'd say we're really committed to um, making sure that we are very investment-led and investment-driven. I just think that's critical when you're a boutique because your point of differentiation is differentiation or performance. And um, in addition to that, though, I'd say one of the things that I think has really helped at Diamond Hill is that we have additionally invested in making sure that we can have a higher level of client service and um, that we have the the people, the technology, and the resources to make sure that we can deliver what our clients need from us on a more custom basis, because that's one of the things that I think being a boutique gives you an advantage in doing. Um, ultimately, though, it is all about making sure we have great investment performance that is in the long run delivering alpha to our clients. And if we can't do that, then the rest is um, is not important, frankly. I want to ask you about two things. First is the talent acquisition and retention, because we are so, so called in the middle of this great resignation, and it's not always easy to attract and retain talent. How do you go about that? 
So um, for us, I think, you know, ultimately we talk a lot about our three primary stakeholders as being our clients, first and foremost, as we discussed, and then secondarily, um, but also critically important, our employees and our shareholders. Um, we are a public company, and so that is an interesting dynamic in terms of making sure you're looking after your shareholders as well. But we ultimately believe that we can do the best job of delivering for all stakeholders by focusing our effort primarily on our clients. In order to do that, of course, we have to make sure that we are attracting and retaining great talent, um, both on the investment side of things, as well as um, across all of our teams. And so we put a lot of effort into how we think about recruiting. Um, over the last few years, we've made a number of changes to making sure that we're looking in new areas to attract talent that comes from diverse backgrounds. And um, I think that's really helping make us a stronger firm. But it's not changing our demographics as a firm very quickly because we do have um, very low turnover as a firm. And I always want to you know, knock on wood when I say that because every employee gets to choose every day whether they come to work here or anywhere else in our industry. And so um, we, do, we do a lot to try to make sure that we are a great place to work. Um, I think that includes everything from, you know, you mentioned earlier about uh, making sure or, or that there's not a lot of people in this industry who are focused on being great managers. We definitely see that, but we made some changes to make sure that we have people both on our investment team and on our client team, as well as on our administration teams that are really focused on leadership and managing people and talking to employees about um, you know, what they like about working here and where we can make improvements um, we do surveys, of course, to get some data on that as well, like everybody does. But we also try to be really transparent with everyone around how we're using that data and what we feel like we learn from those surveys every year, which I think um, helps give them some credibility in um, feeling comfortable that we, we actually act on and care about how people feel about working here. And the final thing I'd mention, too, is that we do try to, to focus a lot on the, in addition to, you know, paying globally competitive compensation, we try to make sure we we also focus on some of the non-compensation related benefits, like, um, you know, providing lunches a couple days a week, which interestingly, those are the days everyone seems to like to come in. And so, you know, people say, oh, I don't care if there's free lunch or not, but it de definitely motivates behavior. Um, and we, you know, we have an amazing 401k match and um, really just try to, to make sure we're continuing to push forward in developing the latest in terms of um, benefits to attract and retain a diverse and highly qualified, skilled labor force. It is so important to, to follow up on those surveys, isn't it? To, to actually Definitely. to illustrate and demonstrate that you're listening and acting on them, I think, more, more than just having them. The second thing I want to ask you about is ESG integration and engagement. Obviously, from a global standpoint, this and you having had a global career in Australia is a good example of uh, where institutional investors are highly focused on this. And Europe will be the other area. How do you see that now changing your investment processes and just being integrated into your day to day work? Yeah, so I think ESG is a fascinating topic that's only getting more interesting by the day. It is um, an area where I'd say historically, um, we Felt, have felt like, you know, we didn't need to call out specifically what we were doing around ESG because it was so embedded in the actions we take in evaluating long-term investment opportunities. And, you know, when you do make investment decisions with a five-plus year time horizon, I don't think it's possible not to look at ESG-related risks. But 
that's still not the same as explicitly identifying which of those risks you think are relevant for any given investment um, decision that you're making. So um, what we've started doing over the last year or so is to put in place some um, processes around trying to document where we have taken ESG explicitly into consideration um, so that our clients can really understand how it integrates into our process. I think it had it had almost been too implicit before. And in this day and age where, you know, clients are really demanding greater transparency around ES and G, um, we're just really trying to make sure that we can deliver that for them. But I wouldn't say it's fundamentally changed the way we invest in any way. And how about the engagement piece, given where you invest in the size spectrum? Do you have any ability to engage? Do some of your clients have engagement partners that will look through the portfolio and then choose to engage at that stage? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I would say we have been pretty, we have not emphasized engagement. And it is something that we've had some conversations around. Um, You know, certainly the majority of our assets are in large cap. And so that's an area where I'd say as a very small manager in the large cap space, we probably have pretty minimal impact in terms of being able to engage but we don't dismiss that you still can have influence. Um, and, I, you know, we've certainly seen very small investors have meaningful influence on some very large companies over the last couple of years. Um, all that being said, I would say our process is more about investing where we believe the, the risks are already appropriately taken into consideration or priced in. And... Um, if we can engage and you know cause some of those risks not to come to pass or to be become less probable that could be an incremental benefit but it's not where we focus in terms of our investment process I want to ask you about what you think of the future of asset management we're in a phase right now where we have seen an increasing encroachment of passive but equally we see massive demand for equity like returns Do you think that this industry and particularly the active management aspect is going to continue to grow and will provide fertile employment opportunities for the next generation? I think that's a great question. And it's certainly one that I would say has been starting to play out in terms of the massive shift of assets to passive. Um, Because certainly, you know, a portfolio manager on a passive strategy has a very different role than a portfolio manager in an active strategy. And, um, you know, I say those as if there's only two choices, but there's quite a a spectrum as well, um, as as we all well know. And so ultimately, um, what I have seen is many fewer companies focusing on, let's say, the the boutique aspect of active long-term investment management. And so I think the roles available, especially to kind of investors in our industry, have been changing. And so, you know, there's certainly still, there certainly are roles still for uh, people who are very focused on kind of fundamental active investing, but there are more opportunities for people who I think are, are incorporating technology and in how they think about finding new ideas or, and, you know, thinking about how they can take their CFA background, for example, and apply it to leadership roles or apply it to, to areas of the market where, um, you know, having an investment background can be applied to things like the client side of things or, um, you know, how to make sure we're best using technology to reach people with our messages. 
Um, so there's so many different aspects, I think, of our industry that are changing that still provide a lot of opportunity. Um, and I do not, you know, I'm not one of those people who believe that analyst roles will be replaced by technology. I think technology is more of a complement to what we do. But ultimately, the concentration of assets has moved meaningfully to passive, which can be served with fewer analysts and fewer portfolio managers relative to, you know, boutique asset management. That's such a good point. Just like you said, one can't be complacent about employee engagement and about managing people. We can't be complacent about our role in the industry either. And I suppose the focus on adaptation and uh, evolution is uh, more critical now than ever. Absolutely. I'm just getting back to some personal reflections now. When you look back at your career and the various global moves you've had and moving through different organizations, have there been any setbacks or challenges that you've learned lessons from? Absolutely. In fact, um, this is something I was uh, I was thinking about in advance of this. I think people look at um, the career trajectories of people like me who've you know who have um, been in some really interesting roles and had some great opportunities, and they think that it's all very planned and intentional. But the reality is that when you look at someone's background, you don't see all of the um, th- all of the roles that they may have applied for and didn't get, or um, you know, the a resume highlights all of the the positives and accomplishments. It doesn't generally highlight where you know you tried something and it didn't work so well. <laughs> so um, I do think that it's really important for you know people thinking about you know how do I how do I get into a CEO role or how do I progress my career in a particular direction that. There are lots of um, ideas on the cutting room floor that you don't see when you're looking at people's background, so to speak. And um, for me, I would say one of those examples is um, I applied for a role to when I wanted to come back from um, from Australia, actually, and I didn't get the role. And you know that ended up working out wonderfully in the long term, but in the short term, it was very frustrating because I was really hopeful that it would be, you know, an easier path back to the U.S. um, than how I ended up coming back. And so in the end, everything worked out. But at the time, it, it really felt disappointing to, you know, apply for a role that someone felt like I wasn't qualified for and I thought I could have been. Um, ultimately, every time I've gone through an experience like that, I've learned so much from the process and I wouldn't change it for anything. So, um, you know, I don't think you can ever discount the learnings you get from your failures as well as from where you've had success. I love that concept of what's left on the cutting room floor because <laughs> there's probably like masses in, in many of our cases. And again, you know, we, we focus on the positive, which is, which is great. But I think it's a, a very solitary reminder. And look at key people. You've spoken a little bit about some of the, the key inspiring people you've met in the CFA Institute. Were there any particular people who influenced you? For example, did you have a mentor or a sponsor in your career? Yes. So I actually um, have kind of considered every manager that I've had over the course of my career as influencing me in a pretty meaningful way. Um, You know, some were more in terms of what to do and some in terms of what not to do. But um, in the end, I actually keep in touch with almost every manager that I've had. And I consider them in particular as kind of like a panel of advisors as opposed to a single mentor approach. And so, um, you know, I've called on people that I've worked with in the past, and particularly those um, who I have reported to, and asked for their input. And it kind of depends on the topic. So, 
you know, when I left Morningstar and went to a hedge fund and was thinking about whether I go back to Morningstar, I, um, I called the guy who was my manager when I was at Driehaus. So he had been the head of international there. And um, he was just so helpful in thinking through the pros and cons of going back to somewhere I'd already worked and, you know, what that might mean for my longer term career trajectory. And um, then, you know, so I have examples like that through time where I wouldn't necessarily call Bill with every issue because he had certain areas of expertise. And so if I had, you know, a question about how do I deal with an employee issue, I might call somebody else. And, um, I think that's just a really great way to think about building sort of a panel of advisors. That's so interesting. And what I've also discovered is even quite senior people, you know, may well be making transitions of their own. Sometimes if it's out of an executive career into a portfolio career, and they may not have taken the time to network. And sometimes you, who's just come off a job search, perhaps can be quite a, a rich source of contacts for them. So I always like to kind of rem- remind myself of my own potential utility in those discussions. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And what do you think about any pieces of advice? We've spoken spoken about your investment beliefs already, but maybe any creed or motto that you use in your career? Is there anything you can share there? Um, well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I'd say, first of all, um, when I started leading equity research at Morningstar, my manager, Haywood Kelly, was really clear about what I should decide and figure out on my own and where I needed to consult him or get his approval first. And that might sound limiting, but as a first-time manager at scale, it was really empowering and it really influenced the way I work with others in trying to provide that same level of clarity. And I will say it's so much harder than it sounds. And I have even contacted Haywood since and said, hey, do you still have that list? And, you know, it's it was one of these things that he just kind of jotted down. These are the things you need to consult me on and everything else. You know, you're free to run. And um, writing that list down must have seemed obvious to him at the time. But um, I have struggled repeatedly to make sure that I'm being kind of thorough and reasonable in constructing similar types of lists around decision rights and helping really make sure you're empowering the leaders that um, work on your team. And certainly that gets back to, again to you know training the next generation of leaders because I think there probably, perhaps there is a gap in that particular uh, rule book or at least a manual that we, we don't seem to have. But certainly uh, as much as we can contribute to that, I think the better we can do. Another piece of advice I would add is to treat every person everyone you work with, with kindness and respect. It sounds so obvious, but I actually do think it needs to be said. And there's a lot of um, hierarchy that creeps in, especially to larger organizations or people thinking that they're the one who adds all the value in our industry. And I could tell you, you know, at Diamond Hill, we have no room for that kind of attitude. And I just feel like ultimately it is so rewarding to figure out, you know, how you can help other people develop and treat everything as a learning opportunity, as opposed to, you know, the the alternative. And staying on the piece of advice theme, was there anything that you would say to your younger self now that you're in a leadership position of your own? Anything you wish you had known when you were perhaps uh, just coming out of your undergrad? I mean, I guess something that I actually... I do share this piece of advice when when people earlier in their career ask me as well, is to put your hand up for opportunities you're interested in. And don't assume that people around you will know that you might be interested. 
and and don't fear rejection. You know, we talked a little bit already about, you know, things that are on the cutting room floor of people's resumes. And, you know, I told you I had applied for several roles that I didn't get over the years and no one sees those, but um, they were really a great learning experience and you have to take all the positive you can out of every one of those types of experience. Um, I mean, I, th- I would say every meaningful role change I've had has come from me voicing my interest in moving in a new direction. And every single time, I would say there was surprise that I was interested. And so it just, to me, reinforces that you cannot wait for other people to tell you what your next career move is going to be. You really have to, you know, put your hand up when you find things you're interested in. I could not agree more. And just listening, Heather, to this conversation, it really reminds me, I've always thought of the CFA Institute as being a group that has a tremendous civic duty and discharges a tremendous duty to the investment profession. And you as a leader in there and through our discussions here around the importance of leadership and how you are ensuring the next generation can learn that are making such a vital contribution to our industry. So thank you so much for coming here and for sharing your insights with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Finn. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to hearing your other podcasts as well. I'm Ethan Devitt. Thank you for listening to the 50 Faces podcast. If you liked what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more inspiring investors and their personal journeys, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all of our content on the 50 Faces Hub, where you'll find a library of role models, resources, and other solutions to enhance your career. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice, and all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest. 